So the New Testament is full of the stories of Jesus, stories of the early church, and then letters from various leaders to churches, um, sometimes groups of churches, sometimes individual churches. And the book of Corinthians is an incredibly interesting two letters. Paul probably wrote them more, and we just don't have that letter. Um, they wrote to him, so sometimes you'll see Paul say there will be a quote, and it will be a question from them. Let me just summarize this way. Incredibly messy church. So if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul makes this extended analogy about gifts and how the church needs to work together because all gifts are important. And then he says, but what's more important than what we're good at is love. And this is a text I assume that you're at least somewhat familiar with, but perhaps not. Um, In 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle uh, gives a definition by description of love. This is for churches, this is for followers of Christ, this is for individuals to learn to love. Picking up in verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love looks at another human, from one human to another, and sees in them the image of God. Occasionally, uh, something will come up repeatedly in sermons, and and people think that uh, I have these themes that are important to me. And I'm sure there are things that are important to me, but my goal is to present to you the scriptures as I understand them. And so one theme that comes up over and over and over and over again is humility. And the reason is it's really important. And it's in most of the New Testament texts, especially in the letters from church to church. And what love does in us is teaches us to look at another human eye to eye and see in them the imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God in another person. Now, the tendency that you and I have is to look up at some people. Oh, they're so much smarter than me. They're so much more gifted than me. Or we look down. I'm so much smarter than them. I'm so much more gifted than them. And that's a problem. It's a very, very, very serious human problem. If you read all of the New Testament letters, you'll see every writer take pains to get at this as a problem, both looking up at people and looking down on them. We're fine with the looking down on on people as a problem. Like, we know that's a problem. But you know, looking up at people wrongly is a problem also. If you think they're a better human than me because they're smarter in a specific way, or more gifted. In the book of Galatians, Paul sa- describes this literally as looking up and looking down, as a very serious problem. In the book of Philippians, he describes it that way. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says a lot more words about how destructive it is to sue one another, both literally and it shows bad fellowship. How destructive it is when we're immoral, as the Bible would define morality. How destructive it is when we're jealous of one another's spiritual gifts. And intelligences. 
And then he takes pains to say, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And one of the ways that you and I are grown into humans that neither look up nor look down is by learning to trust and accept the work of Christ on our behalf. Last spring we looked at the Apostles' Creed. I don't know how many of you could recite the Apostles' Creed. It talks about God briefly, then it talks about the work of Christ at great length. Then it talks about the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. If all of the work of Christ had to happen that you and I might be reconciled to God through that What happens is we're humbled. And humility is not think lowly of yourself. There are a lot of great definitions. I often default to one that C.S. Lewis gave. I'm going to give you a really not tweetable. You can tweet it, but it just you won't get any likes or retweets or even comments if you tweet this. But you're welcome to. I don't care. Humility is full of good confidence and empty of the bad confidence. So you have skills. And gifts. And let's be honest about them. There are things we're not good at. And let's be honest about that. That's okay. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a funeral in the Jewish synagogue right up on Bushy Hill. And uh, a man that I had played basketball with. And it's beautiful. It's gorgeous inside. And I looked up. And it looked a little bit like those rafters. Did I even call those rafters? I don't want to offend anyone. What are they? Beams. Beams. Thank you. I knew it. He knows where this is going too because he came to the 9 o'clock service. So there are these beautiful beams connecting. And I went up to Rick Schoenhart, who's been at the church for a long time and is an architect. And I said, Rick, I was in the synagogue this week and it was beautiful. Did you design it? And he said, yes. That's humility. It's not perfect. Rick, you've now heard this twice. You're going to really have to pray that you not get puffed up. (laughs) He could have been like, well, yes, I did. Would you like to see the drawings? (laughs) He could have also said, yeah, I did. But any architect would have done could have done that. You know what? That's actually not true. I'm sure there are is someone that's that skilled, but he's a very skilled architect. He just said, yes. And then he asked me if they had, if, how they were doing the entranceways to the buildings because he still remembered all the specs. So what happens in us when we reflect on and sing about the work of Christ is we naturally become more and more humble. Letting go of the bad confidence that's ugly. Embracing what we are good at and skilled in. See, humble people are ready to love. They're not looking at their feet. They're not looking at the mirror. Prideful people are looking in the mirror, very proud of themselves, overly deprecating people are looking at their feet, not believing they have anything to offer, God or anyone else. Humble people, because of the work of Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit and their knowledge of the Father heart of God, can look at every other human and see in them the image of God. Love looks at the Imago Dei and it does not envy. You notice that's the first negative 
in the definition by description of love. It's almost equal number of things love does do and does not do, hence the series. Love looks at other humans eye to eye, neither up nor down, and does not envy. This is where I want to take a deep breath, and I was talking really fast in the first service. I think talking fast is my version of yelling. (laughs) I'm going to try not to talk too fast. I haven't taken any cold medicine. Sometimes I take cold medicine, I talk fast. Because our culture runs on envy. We believe envy will stimulate creativity. We believe envy is part of how a capitalist system works. And maybe that's even true. And okay. But biblically, envy is an incredibly serious problem. And when I define it, if you want to send me an email, you can. But but hear me. My definition is not a Merriam-Webster definition. It's not Urban Dictionary, though I wanted to look it up on Urban Dictionary just to see. Because sometimes that can be entertaining. And sometimes it can be really... Awkward. Um, Challenging. In the Bible, there's a spectrum. And this spectrum is is at least different than our cultures, if not altogether different. Okay? So beginning on the spectrum is jealousy. And here's the thing. God describes himself in love towards us as jealous. So jealousy, biblically, not a bad thing in and of itself. Okay? Jealousy is desiring something that you don't have. Right? Then there's coveting. Tenth commandment, don't covet your neighbor's people, don't covet your neighbor's stuff, don't covet your neighbor's money. So coveting is wanting something that someone else has. That's troublesome. That's why it made it into the top ten. It disrupts neighbor love. Envy is even worse. Envy is like biblical cussing. There's a word in uh, the New Testament, skubalon. It's a Greek word. You can look it up. Not, not self-contained, underwater, breathing apparatus. It's a real word, not an acronym. It's like biblical cussing. Google it. Envy is similar from a Bible standpoint. Envy is looking at something that someone else has, wanting it for yourself, and thinking maybe they don't deserve it as much as I do. You and I are familiar with these terms culturally, and the Bible treats them very differently than we would instinctively. And so the reason I'm talking fast and the reason I'm tempted to yell is you're going to see literally thousands of ads this week that assume both that we're envious creatures, which is true, but also that that's fine and it's part of how our our economy even works today in conjunction with culture. Biblically, it's incredibly destructive to neighbor love. Incredibly destructive. And it's not just individuals. Churches have envy, too. For 12 years, I worked for a church in St. Louis, and we had a middle school that was not ours. So we had a trailer and an expedition. And if I had come and stood here as a guest preacher, I would have been jealous of the building. And I might have been covetous of the building. And I might even looked at you all and been envious. And that would have disrupted our relationship. Those of you that are here at this church, and even if you go to another church and you're just visiting in town for the weekend, this church has everything that it needs today to accomplish the mission of God in the place that we're called to. Everything. 
You know how I know that? Because there are followers of Jesus here. Now, every year we have to make decisions based upon what we have in terms of uh, finances. And so I need to ask you a favor. And this is loosely tied to envy, but I promised our finance committee that I would do this. If you're a member, a regular attender of the barn, there are a bunch of these in the back, and we would love for you to fill it out. If you're a visitor, you can give us money. That's fine. But we don't expect you to plan. I usually say the opposite, so I just thought I'd say it the other way this time. But if you plan to give to the church, would you just let us know how much so that we can be good stewards of what God has asked us to do? And I say that in full confidence, 100% confidence, that we have everything we need because there are followers of Jesus here. When we notice envy in ourselves, when you see the neighbor with the leaf blower, and it's four years newer than your leaf blower. <laughs> and you're like, I kind of wish I had that leaf blower. And in fact, she shouldn't have it. I should have it. This is, it's not internal dialogue. It's a semi-conscious sense that we should have what they have. And maybe they don't deserve it. We've got to learn to do something very Christian and very challenging and very different than the culture around us. We have to repent When you sense a covetousness in your being, excuse me, an envy for your neighbor's people or for your neighbor's money, for your neighbor's stuff, and you have some sense that you might deserve it more than them, you know, look up and give one of those two-word prayers. Lord, help. You can say it out loud if you want. Your neighbor will think you're even more odd than you are. But let's be honest. We're odd neighbors. We believe in this stuff. I don't know if you need to go repent to your neighbor. Uh, Maybe think through that a little bit. Maybe consult a few friends. But absolutely when we notice envy in ourselves, which is not just desiring the thing that we don't have that our neighbor has, but it's kind of thinking, maybe they don't deserve it and I do. We repent. Lord, help. Because envy is how we learn that we're not fully trusting the Lord in that moment with the circumstances He has us in. God has put certain people in my life and in yours. God has given us a certain amount of money and stuff to steward. Some of us are actually overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that we have to steward. And if, if one of you gave a grace story, then everybody would envy and it'd be this terrible moment of irony for the whole church. I wish I had that problem. But for a follower of Jesus who's been asked to steward a lot, it's actually a burden. Most of you are like, I really like that burden. But it is actually a burden either way. You and I are asked to love the people in our life, to steward well the finances and the skills and gifts and intelligences that God has given us. And we are called to repent when we notice envy in our being. For others as skills that we wish we had and think maybe we deserve more than them. For others as stuff. For others as people. Envy is like a, a splinter. Can I just say that? Hurts a little bit, maybe not very much, maybe not aware of it. You got the splinters before that don't really hurt till they get infected. And then they can cause real tissue damage, right? 
that correct, Stu? Is he in here? I don't know. Nurse, nurses, is that even right? I don't know. I don't have that skill. Envy, biblically, is like a terrible splinter that will absolutely get infected if we don't learn the spiritual skill of repenting to God when we notice it in ourselves. I offer to you that prayer, Lord. Help. Love looks at the imago and does not envy, but believes in people. I know many of you are keeping very copious notes on this series, and so you have a good working definition of belief in all things from a couple of weeks ago when I preached on it. I need to preach on it again, because if we talk about hope, we don't talk about believing in people, our hope will come across as condescending. I'll explain that in just a minute. Love believes. What does Paul even mean in that? We would never give that as advice to people in relationship. Just believe all the things, which is literally all the Greek says is, all things believe, believes. What does that mean? It means on a day-to-day basis, we trust the Holy Spirit, and through that, we look at other people, and we believe the best about them. It doesn't mean be unwise. It means we attempt to love them as best we can as another human made in God's image. The acid test of both humans and churches is, do we love well? And oftentimes the acid test is a very short one because people come in and they don't stay very long. What I have heard about this church is we're pretty good at welcoming people. How are we doing as individuals? Do people think that you're kind? If they don't, I'm sure there's a reason, and I'm also sure that we have some more growth. The acid test of a follower of Jesus and of a church is, are we kind? To who? Everybody. Those in need, enemies, neighbors, friends. Very, very, very loosely quoting multiple instances in Jesus' life. What does it mean to love enemies? That means we get to love everybody by being welcoming and kind as a church. Sound naive? Does it sound permissive? Kind of is. If you are a follower of Jesus and have been one for more than a year, you have almost certainly been taken advantage of relationally and maybe financially if you're living like a follower of Christ. That's part of the price we pay in a bent and a broken world, crying out for redemption. It actually isn't permissive or naive, though, to believe in people, to choose to believe in them. It puts the law of God in the right place in our makeup. That's why I preached on the law last year and love this year. Because it sounds so great to preach on love, like everybody should be about love. We're in love with love as a culture, so that's fine. That's why I preached on the law first, because the law is essential. It's a gift for us to know how to live wisely, to remind us of our need for God. So what happens when we learn to believe in people? We learn about loving them today. When we allow the Holy Spirit to grow us into that, we will look permissive, but we will not be, because love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We believe in the law of God fully and firmly as a guide to life, as a reminder of our great need, but it is set in the right place. Before it is love for others.
love looks at the image of God and other people and does not envy, but believes and hopes. So what is hope? Hope is the expectation of our future selves being grown up. This is why I wanted to talk about belief first. If you're married and you talk a lot about who your spouse is becoming, what's going to happen? You're going to kind of annoy them. Because they're like, what about who I am today? Right? One of my favorite books on marriage is called The Meaning of Marriage. And he talks a lot about this. That we're not just in love with the person today, but we're in love with who they're becoming. But saying that, which is what Paul is getting at, love hopes all things. Saying that without condescension requires us remembering that we also believe. Love believes all things today and hopes all things. There is an expectation that we are growing up. We are being grown up, followers of Jesus. That's what Paul is getting at when he says love hopes all things. This is part of the reason that as a leader and a pastor, I say time is essential. Like, what does that mean? Time is essential. It means that when we do the very difficult work of being a human being to another, or being a pastor to a friend, or being a friend, or being an elder, and we find someone in sin, we go to them and say, you know, I'm a sinner too, and I need you to stop doing that. Because of Galatians 5 and 6, because of Matthew 18, because of many encouragements in Scripture that, of course, grace meets us where we are. But it's so much more wonderful than that. It grows us up in love. But that takes a while. And so unless someone is being actively hurt, we're never in a hurry to expect growth from them. Because the growth is from the inside out. This is the same in marriage. If I'm sitting with a couple, one of them probably thinks, if you would just do this one thing a little bit differently, everything would be better. Your marriages are so much more complex than that. A couple of years ago, my wife and I realized we were asking each other questions that the only possible answer to it would be, because I'm an idiot. You know what I'm talking about? And we didn't mean it that way. We were just seeing, like, why didn't you finish loading the dishwasher? A friend asked me once why I spilled gasoline in my car. And I said, did you mean how? Because I could answer how. I don't know if I can answer why. It's the same in parenting. How many times do we need to tell our children, I love you and I desire what's best for you. That's why I can't let you perpetrate violence to your sibling. But we'll have to say that again and again and again. And notice in ourselves, sometimes we say the right words, but we're angry. Time is essential in this. But here's the, here's the wonderful good news. I'm pretty confident in my explanation of 1 Corinthians 13 and how that, how that helps us as humans and us as a church. But I am infinitely more confident in this. That you and I, who say to Jesus, you're Lord and I trust you, we're being unstoppably grown in this. Would you just sway back and forth just a little bit? 
I'll tell you why in a second. Come on, just bear with me. I'm almost done. Jesus, okay, that's good. Thank you. Good job. Jesus described the Holy Spirit as like a wind. We cannot see it, but we can see its effect. So there you were swaying. Hopefully it's because you have said to Jesus, Your Lord, I trust you with my heart and with my decisions. Therefore, we are already being grown up. Away from envy, able to pluck it out of our being. Say to God, help. Into a love for others that believes and hopes. Loves them today and tomorrow. This almost sounds like bumper sticker stuff, so I'm nervous that you're thinking, like, right, everyone's on a journey. Right, God's not done with me yet. Is that an Oklahoma thing? You guys have a bumper sticker up here? Like, yeah, bumper sticker, like, be patient. God's not, you know, I don't care. But it's not. It's not bumper sticker philosophy that we're all in process. It is a belief in a Trinitarian God who loves you as a father who sent his son Jesus, whose work reconciles us back to him, and who has given us the Holy Spirit, who is even now growing us up as individuals and as a church in love. That is good news. Would you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful that your love has never and will never quit on us I'm thankful that your definition by description of love is one that you are even now growing us in and we either participate with your spirit or we resist but you are so loving that you will grow us in spite of ourselves or with our participation Lord I pray that with faith not in my words or our voices or our decisions, but because you are great in your fatherly love, in the work of your son, and in the ongoing ever-present power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.